This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 6. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story this episode, a new look at an old issue. The story is about HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, and how it created a whole class of criminals, many of whom are serving long prison sentences. A warning to our listeners, some of what you're about to hear is pretty graphic and could be disturbing. Joining us is the author of our cover story, Jessica Wapner. Jessica, welcome to Undark. Thank you. Let's begin with the gentleman in your lead, Kerry Thomas. Who is he and where did you interview him? Kerry Thomas is a man from Boise, Idaho, who is living with HIV. He was diagnosed with the disease in 1988. He was arrested for intentionally trying to infect somebody with HIV in 1990. That led to a prison sentence, eventually for statutory rape. He was arrested again in 1996, again for exposing somebody to HIV without having disclosed his viral status to that person. He spent seven years in prison at that time. He was then arrested again in 2009 for the same crime, and he's now serving a prison sentence of a maximum of 30 years. And these offenses were were committed in when he was a relatively young man in his in his 30s. You you write that he actually never infected anyone? No, he's never infected anybody. He's been convicted twice of intentionally exposing people to the virus. Tell us about the law under which he was convicted and sent to prison. So these are typically referred to as HIV non-disclosure laws. They were first passed starting in 1986 and as recently as a few years ago. These laws are intended to stop what would be called criminal transmission of HIV, almost like using your HIV as a weapon, where you don't inform your sexual partner of your status and thereby risk exposing them to the virus without their consent. Now, the state of Idaho passed this law back in, what, in the 1980s, when the fears of HIV and and therefore of AIDS were very uh, widespread. And I guess many of the states did the same. And yet you write that uh, some of these laws have been passed in much more recent years. And some of the people who are serving prison sentences were convicted quite recently. Yes. And as I really write about in the article, the laws have really not kept pace with the advancement of science and medicine. Really, even when they were first passed, quite a bit was known about how HIV can and cannot be transmitted, but a lot of hysteria still prevailed. However, over the years, things we've come to know about HIV, the difficulty there is in transmitting the virus, even without protection, and then how any form of protection minimizes the risk of transmission, really hasn't been accounted for in the laws even the most recent ones. Several of the laws include saliva 
for example, as a transmission route, which we know we've known since the mid 80s is really, really a negligible risk. One of the people you write about is uh, serving a prison sentence for, for spitting on a guard, right? Yes, he was in prison already. This is a man named Curtis Weeks in Texas who was in prison and at some point spit on a prison officer and was sentenced to life for that. As we said earlier, back in the 1980s, when many of these laws were passed, uh, HIV, to, if you had HIV, it was pretty likely that, uh, that you would not survive. Since the early 90s, the whole uh, medical uh, landscape has changed. Tell us uh, something about how HIV is treated nowadays in comparison to the way it was treated back then. When a person contracts HIV, they will start what's called highly active antiretroviral therapy. That's what people refer to as the HIV cocktail. And the current version of the drugs keep the disease at bay. They keep the what's called the viral load at undetectable levels, meaning that a person has so little virus in their body that it can't be detected through normal testing that's available. It's highly unlikely that a person who has an undetectable viral load from adhering to their medication could transmit the virus. Do we know how many people have been convicted under these laws and how many people are doing time? It's a great question, and it's a difficult question to answer because states typically don't make that information easy to find. And some individuals who are charged with these crimes will plead to a lesser charge. However, the estimates put it in the hundreds. Um, ProPublica, the Center for HIV Law and Policy, the United Nations all have made counts, and it's estimated to be in the hundreds since the laws began in the mid-80s. You write that laws like this uh, kind of paradoxically could be inadvertently helping to spread the virus. Can you explain? Yeah, that's one of the major concerns about the laws. So Senator Pat Stedman, who was integral in modernizing the law in Colorado, which just happened a few months ago, said that he heard this kind of term that people tend to say among themselves on the street, which is get tested, get arrested. So the point is, if you know your HIV status, you can be charged with knowingly having sex with someone with HIV without telling them. If you don't know your status, you can't be charged with this crime. However, the problem is that it is the people who have the virus but don't know it that are huge contributors to the spread of the disease, obviously, right? If you don't know you have the disease, then you're not going to be treated for it and you're going to continue spreading it. You mentioned a state uh, lawmaker in Colorado who's trying to get the laws changed in that state. What about uh, elsewhere? Is there, Are the courts and the laws kind of catching up with our knowledge of HIV and how it's spread? Yes and no. There have been a lot of movements in various states to modernize the laws. The very big one that was celebrated in recent years was Iowa, uh, that was because, uh, really catalyzed by the conviction of a man named Nick Rhodes, who was sentenced to 25 years in prison after a one-night stand. He was released. He was eventually removed from the sex offender registry as well. And his arrest really started a huge movement. 
There have been many advocacy efforts in other states, such as Florida, for example. Um, however, I would also say that no state has yet repealed the law entirely. So somebody can still be arrested under laws that sort of talk about sexually transmitted diseases in general. In addition, some of these arrests have been made under regular felony laws. So there's the laws themselves, and then there's the underlying problem that allows the laws to persist and charges against people with HIV to persist as well, that is connected as much to stigma and bias as to as it is to the laws themselves. Jessica, are there other diseases that um, are covered by similar laws? Several laws encompass several sexually transmitted diseases. They will mention hepatitis C, for example, which can be transmitted by needle sharing or more rarely sexual transmission. Tuberculosis has been in laws at different times. No disease is singled out in the way that HIV is. There have been cases where hepatitis C was transmitted on some kind of mass scale at a dentist's office or a doctor, but HIV stands alone as a criminal disease. People who are diagnosed with HIV are being told that they've been basically using their penis as a weapon, for example. If you go on the subway and you have the flu and you sneeze on someone and you pass your flu to someone who is frail and elderly and weak nearby you, that person can die if they get the flu. But you don't arrest somebody for doing that. You don't arrest someone for going on the subway when they're sick, even though it has a much higher risk in a way of causing harm. So uh, let's come back to Kerry Thomas, the man uh, you, you began your story with. Um, he's still in prison. He's, uh, what, 52 years old now. He's, uh, he's going to be in prison till he's 65. What is he like? Kerry Thomas is a really interesting person. He's very thoughtful. He reads a lot. He writes in a journal a lot. He listens to Democracy Now! from his prison cell. He works in recreation in the prison, which apparently is the highest paying job, I think, which is about 33 cents an hour. He is Muslim. He is very thoughtful about his situation. It would seem that he has done a lot, taken himself through a lot personally to be settled with his situation, and yet at the same time have the strength to continue fighting it. Um, because he's been appealing the ruling in 2009 and has had that appeal uh, dismissed recently. And he's now trying to find what else he can do to try to shorten his sentence, um, largely because he's a father and also very recently a grandfather. How did he come to be arrested in the first place? He had a roommate he'd had sex with, and she discovered that he had HIV it was something he hadn't told her, and she went to the police. Uh, he was in his mid-20s at the time. It was a year approximately after his diagnosis. He was a very young man, and he says he used a condom. The police reports say that there was no condom use. At that time, the police contacted several other women. Uh, when he was diagnosed with HIV, he had to report to the public health department 
every woman he'd been intimate with. So the police called all of those women, asked if they knew him, had they been involved with him, did they know he had HIV? So several other women came forward and made reports against him, but actually several of those women were people he was involved with before he was ever diagnosed, which is something that was never made clear in all of the news coverage that happened in 1990. But this is uh, crucial to the story. How did he know he had HIV? He was going to enlist in the military, and he went in for his medical exam, and it was diagnosed at that time. They did a blood test and found out that he had HIV, and the doctor at the time told him that he had maybe a year and a half to live, and he could not enlist in the army. He did survive. Do we know how he escaped what was then considered to be a certain death sentence? The virus managed to keep at a minimum for many years. He didn't start medication right away. And when he did start his medication, he has just managed to stay in very good health. Um, One of the ironies that he likes to point out is that the surest way for him to get out of prison right now, it would be if he stopped taking his medication. Why is that? Because he would then become sick and there are different rules that sort of come to play when you become very sick in prison. You can have a compassionate release and that might be the one thing that could possibly get him out of prison early. He's he's not going to do it. It's not something that is seriously on the table. It's just a strange irony of the situation. So on what basis is he appealing his conviction? He has tried to appeal his most recent conviction on many grounds. He's tried to say that medically it was impossible for him to transmit the virus, and that was something that the judge at the time dismissed. He has also made an appeal based on ineffective counsel. There's a lot to be told about all of his cases, and when you dig in, they all raise serious doubts about his guilt. His counsel, Carrie Thomas alleges, was not effective at investigating his side of the story. There were emails and other communications that were never found. They didn't talk to his doctor to confirm he had an undetectable viral load, for example. There's a medical report that records him telling his healthcare provider about being in a new relationship, and yes, he had disclosed. So there are things that could cast doubt on the uh, victim side of the story. All of those appeals have been dismissed, and I don't know what his current strategy is. Currently, he's healthy. He sees a doctor only once a year. He's taking his HIV medication. And as he likes to say, so far, the only side effect that he's experienced from HIV is the legal system. Well, Jessica Watner, this is a disturbing story and just uh, so surprising. Thank you very much for writing it and for coming on the podcast to tell us about it. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk with you. Jessica Wapner is a freelance science writer based in New York and the author of the book, The Philadelphia Chromosome. She is the author of our cover story on the criminalization of HIV. Now here's a troubling story about scientists misbehaving and some young journalists who were trying to bring them to account. 
Joining us to talk about it is a slightly older journalist, Paul Rayburn. Hi, Paul. Hi, hi David. I'll let that go by. It's okay. 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm even older, but uh, anyway. Paul, you're, uh, I, I hear some sound effects in the background. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm calling in from my vacation. I'm in Ontario. That's part of that big country north of us that we sometimes don't think about. Uh, and uh, we're on the shores of Lake Huron, and we're having a wonderful Canadian hospitality and having a wonderful time. So I apologize for the sounds in the background, but I hope it makes the listeners feel a little bit more relaxed. Just a little ambient noise. We like it. So, uh, Paul, you uh, focus this month on a young journalist named Azim Garaishi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Tell me about some of the things that she has uh, uncovered. So the young reporter that you're referring to, I, I believe it's Azim Garaishi. I might not have it quite right myself. And apologies to Azim if I have it wrong. She has been a very aggressive young reporter with BuzzFeed News and investigated allegations of sexual harassment. And, you know, she got a lot of leaked documents, and this was about a year and a half ago. She was involved in reporting another case earlier this summer. And as these things go, as we know, reporters get associated with a particular kind of story. She has not quite established a beat as a reporter covering sexual harassment. That's hard to do because... You can ask questions and poke around, but you're pretty much limited to finding an inside source who can provide documents. So it's not always something you can go after. But she's gone after these couple of stories quite aggressively, and I wouldn't be surprised if she has more tips or hints that she might be working on. Generally speaking, we're talking about uh, prominent male uh, scientists who have attained a rather high status at uh, various universities who are taking advantage in one way or another of younger female students. Do I have that right? I, I, well, I think everyone is a little bit different. That's the general pattern. It's not always universities. Sometimes it's other, you know, similar institutions, academic institutions. It may not always be young students. It may be colleagues. Uh, but the idea is that if this attracts more attention, maybe more people will come forward to people like Azim Gureshi and other reporters and start to talk about these things and open up. The problem, as you know, is the person who might be committing sexual harassment has obviously every reason to keep that quiet. The institution has many reasons to keep that quiet because it could jeopardize funding and reputation and so forth. And really, the most tragic piece is the victims have many reasons to keep it silent because it can really threaten their careers when they're at a very vulnerable stage, either as students or postdocs. Something we should say about uh, this uh, reporter, not only is she quite young, she's in her 20s, I believe, but the publication she writes for is also very young. That's right. And and Azine's editor there is uh, Virginia Hughes, or Ginny Hughes, to those of us who know her at BuzzFeed News. Which didn't even exist 10 years ago, right? Right. That's right. And in the last few years, they hired uh, Ginny, which was a, a brilliant move, very talented writer and editor. And the first person she hired was Azine Gureshi. So you know, and they're really doing some great work. And they were very eager to point out that, that Azine is writing not only about sexual harassment, but she's really carved out an interesting collection of stories that have to do with gender, HIV, LGBT issues, 
these are all very difficult things to cover. What uh, strikes me about the scientists in question, each new revelation is kind of shocking because these guys are so well known. That's absolutely true. And, you know, I think it speaks to our notion of what scientists are like and what they're about. We hold scientists, I think, to a higher standard. Uh, These are, you know, dispassionate, curious people whose motivation is often really the search for knowledge. And so we expect them to be a little bit superhuman. And maybe that makes us harder for us to recognize and see that in this in this respect, they are, are sadly as guilty of wrongdoing as many people in many other professions. Paul, with all these stories coming out, it's beginning to sound almost as if there's an epidemic of sexual harassment in academic science. Do you think that's the case? I, I don't think we can say one way or the other. Uh, is it worse in scientific laboratories than it is in Wall Street trading rooms? I, I don't know. But certainly we want to keep a very close eye on it. And science writers are you know, among the people who should be keeping that close eye on things. It's always been true and always will be true that young people with energy can enliven a field. And I think with this particularly sad set of circumstances, Azine and other young reporters are bringing a a good eye on. I would say also that Michael Balter, a longtime veteran who's probably in the age range of you and me, David, has also written about these things lately. So it's not exclusively the young people. I just want to put in one plug for the older reporters as well. Paul Rayburn is a journalist, blogger, broadcaster, and the author of, or co-author of five books, including most recently, The Game Theorist's Guide to Parenting. This is his last uh, tracker column for Undark. So, Paul, thanks very much. Thanks very much, and it's been a pleasure doing the tracker. near-death experience. You know, your life flashes before your eyes. You experience a shining aura. Your beloved grandma calls to you from the great beyond. Well, it happens to a lot of people, and now researchers are trying to figure out what's going on. Reporter Sandy Ong explains. I could see nothing except for a gigantic door, and the gigantic door had a proverbial tunnel through it, And I touched this door with my being, my soul self, and the shimmer, the transparency, the translucency was alive. There was life in it. And I found myself in a place of timelessness. That was Peter Panagor describing the near-death experience he had in 1981, when an ice climbing trip to the Rockies went wrong. Stories like Panagor's have fascinated people for centuries. But it's only in recent years that scientists have tried to figure out what's actually going on when people have these so-called near-death experiences. Are they real? And if so, what explains them? Near-death experiences, or NDEs as they're commonly referred to, are reported fairly often. According to a 1982 Gallup poll, roughly one in every 20 Americans has been in this curious state between life and death. In the decades since that poll was taken, a number of researchers have looked into whether there could be a serious scientific explanation for this strange fringe phenomenon. 
So what have researchers discovered about near-death experiences in all that time? A working definition is as good a place as any to start. A near-death experience is a narrated story, an experience that someone has when they were on the verge of death, for example, during a cardiac arrest from which they were revived, or some other grave illness or injury. Dr. Raymond Moody is a psychologist who coined the term near-death experiences in 1975. It was after Moody published his book Life After Life that research into near-death experiences really took off. Since then, over 3,500 cases have been studied, and hundreds of these experiences have been reported in credible peer-reviewed journals. They do tend to have a common narrative pattern over much of the world. Not that every such story has identical, but rather that there are a number of features, about 15 common features that crop up in, in various people's accounts. Some of these features include traveling through a proverbial tunnel, seeing bright lights, having an out-of-body experience, being in another realm, meeting deceased relatives, or having a life review. The themes are so similar, no matter how the person nearly died, or what kind of background they're from, that there's even a 16-point scale scientists use to describe the depth of an individual's near-death experience. It's called the Grayson NDE scale, after psychiatrist Bruce Grayson, a forefather in the field. They often involve a sense of leaving the physical body or being in contact with non-physical realities. But among the cases that have been studied, there seems to be no likely candidate for near-death experiences. They can happen to anyone of any age, sex, culture, or religion. And it turns out, you don't even have to be close to death to have one. There are, in fact, mystical experiences that occur in other circumstances, like meditation or prayer, that are very similar to NDEs. I don't think death is essential to it or even coming close to death. So we know that near-death experiences do happen and that there are people who study them. But what scientific explanations are there for NDEs? While what happens in the brain is poorly understood, most scientists studying the phenomenon rooted in human physiology. Things like a lack of oxygen to the brain, too much carbon dioxide, or an increase in neurotransmitters like endorphins being produced during times of intense stress have offered some clues. Other researchers have suggested that NDEs have some relationship to rapid eye movement, or that they might result from a brief surge in electrical activity 10 to 15 minutes after the heart has stopped. Something called the death surge. Still, none of these have fully explained NDEs in all cases. And so the research continues. It's a very complicated phenomenon that we're dealing with here. That was Stanley Krippner, a fellow of four American Psychological Association divisions and a past president of two. He says that while the APA doesn't adopt official positions on any topic, including near-death experiences, the association's publication press recently published a book that included a chapter on it. Krippner was one of the editors of Varieties of Phenomenalist Experience, which was released in 2014. In that chapter, the authors reviewed the literature and said that the near-death experience was certainly a topic that needed to be investigated because so many people report them. And it also said that we cannot reach any definitive answer because so much of the work has been anecdotal in nature. However, the chapter really did give permission to psychologists to investigate near-death experiences you might say that APA gave its approval for the investigation of NDEs. And there's so much more investigating that needs to be done. 
I think you'll see time after time, scientists will come to that conclusion that, yeah, we can make some guesses, and bottom line is we don't know the answer. But what we do know is that these experiences are very real to the people who've had them, and that the decision to come back from the edge of death is often a choice they make, something that changes them forever. Why would I want to come back? If I could stay where it's love and beauty all the time in a way that it's 10,000 times the 10 million what you could ever experience here. I saw my son's face as he said, I love you, Dad. And I thought about my daughter, my brand new grandbaby. And I decided if I could stay, I would for love. And coming back with a renewed zest for life might be more than just a movie trope. The most consistent after effect is that people are no longer afraid of dying after the experience. They've lived through it now, they've seen that it wasn't so horrible, and they're not afraid anymore. So where does this leave us all? With a lot to think about, evidently. Researchers still have a ways to go in terms of understanding the science behind near-death experiences. But we do know one thing. They help people engage in a wider conversation about life and death, and to consider the possibilities of what may come after. For Undark, I'm Sandy Ong. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until next time, I'm David Corcoran for Undark. Undark.